Radio on Soho Radio. We are back. We are live on air. Spring is springing. Valentine's is round the corner. The skies are blue. We're very excited. Both my ankles work. Everything is very, very <laughs> exciting. My name is Selena Godden, and I'm here in the studio with my great friends Amarose Brands and Matabut. And we're very excited. We've got an amazing show for you today. Um, and we're going to kick off with. We're going to kick off with a bit of Bruce Springsteen because we're in our love grooves, aren't we, today? We are in the love groove. We are grooving with the love. And so sharing the love and bringing you some Bruce Springsteen. Listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. If you want to tweet along with us, what's the information, Matt? It's at Roaring Twenties Radio, and the twenties is two zero s. Same on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Same on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Tweet along, message us, let us know what you're thinking of the show. We have a very special guest in today, Emma Rose. Tell us who's here. 
We are um, joined today by Farah Nayeri, wonderful uh, author, musician, and journalist, um, correspondent for the New York Times. So, uh, great company, but also um, such an interesting uh, kind of person to have, and also addresses all the aspects of the show, (laughs) creativity, literature, and art. Um, She will be talking to us about her book, which is out last week. Uh, about 10 days ago, ten a couple of weeks ago. ago, yeah. Yeah, and that's Take Down Art and Power in the Digital Age. That's right. Yes. <laughs> and so she'll be talking about uh, to us about that a little bit later. I just want to say it's such a brilliant cover. Yes. The cover yes. of the book is absolutely... If anyone wants to see the cover, it's up on our Instagram. It's, it's such a beautiful cover. Absolutely. Really catches the eye. I mean, that's what everyone says who sees the book. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's really, really, beautiful. really clever. It's really clever, yeah. exactly. It says exactly, you just know as soon as you see it, exactly what it means. Yeah, my publishers will be very pleased by this uh, <laughs> feedback. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, we'll be joined um, by the usual um, clips from Matt, poetry from around the country and around the world, Selena's book recommendations, and I'll be chatting to Farah about the art world and her book. So now um, we are going to play a little bit of Betty Davis. Oh, rest yes. in peace, rest in power, Betty. Yes. So this was, this is, <laughs> He Was a Big Freak by <laughs> Betty Davis. He was a big when I was this woman, I please him, I need him to the tail. When I was this mystery.
Doctors say all kinds of dirty things. He was a bad freak. Slim, slim, flimsy, fantasy. He was a bad freak. Kept his mind entertained all the time. I get him off with my turquoise chain. the trailblazing iconic betty davis there very sad to see she went to the great gig in the sky this week uh, rest in power okay so matt what has been going on poetry what is going on what is going on tell our listeners now there's lots going on loads and loads and loads i'm going to start off with events and i've chosen six in london and two in leeds so it's a fair ratio it's a london <laughs> radio show i live in Le- like do you know what i mean i don't want to drown you out okay <laughs> So next week on the 16th of Feb, it is February, right, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. 16th of Feb, uh, Jordans returns to Rich Mix in Bethnal Green. So Jordans oh, is brilliant. produced by Apples and Snakes. We have Zena Edwards, Casey Bailey, Ooh. Jan Blake and Live Music. It's always a good night, isn't it, Jordans? Yeah, it's yeah. a really good name That's as well. That's a great lineup. yeah. Uh, and then the following night on the 17th, uh, Nowhere Nights at... Uh, so it's a French name, I don't, I'm probably going to get this wrong. Toulouse Lautrec... Toulouse That's right. That's absolutely <laughs> right. Toulouse yeah. yep. In Elephant and Castle. <laughs> like your little French face when you did that. They have a night called uh, Nowhere Nights where they have live jazz music and they have a, usually have a poet on stage and it's the repeat beat poet. Yay! Yay, yeah. on the 17th. That's that's when his pamphlet comes out. Um, so in a week later, on the 24th of Feb, Outspoken at the South Bank Centre in Waterloo, Anthony Joseph, Holly Pester, Fiona Benson and live music. Outspoken again. It's always a class and night. another fantastic lineup. Check but that out. It might be sold out. So if you can't get to that, on the same night, the 24th of Feb, off the chest at Canada Water Theatre they have Molly Neely and Gabriel Akamo plus open mic so if you can't get to that one go to that one instead um, on the 28th of Feb Rough Trade Books at The Social in Fitzrovia four brown girls who write plus Yay. Mona Arshi and Sophia Kamara Kinshasa yeah, yeah that's they're great aren't they powerful. Yeah. Yeah. so as far as I'm aware four, girl, four brown girls who write they, they host like an in conversation with as well as the performances so it's a bit of a sort of like book discussion performance rough trade books they just do such good events yeah Yeah, they do don't they yeah 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 Yeah, we love rough trade books shout out to rough trade books nina yay and then the last one in london last one in this strange town is the rap party on the 19th of march 
That's uh, the Albany in Deptford as part of Deptford Lit Fest. It will sell out, so I'm giving it a shout out now so you can get your tickets. Inno Elms plus special guests plus DJ sets. Oh, the rap amazing. party, rap and poetry, it's such a good night. Yeah, Inno has been running that for a while now. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah, yeah. And they always commission the guests to write a poem in response to a rap or hip hop song. It's just such a beautiful get together and they have a DJ set and everyone gets up and dances to each song. So you do your poem first, then they play the song. Oh, it's, it's so good. I feel like Inua doesn't get enough shout outs for everything that he does. I know, he's, he's amazing. <laughs> he is amazing. We, we men- love him. I know, we, we mention him all the time, but for completely different things. Like, oh, yeah. he's <laughs> had a really amazing play, an amazing poem. Amazing, yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, so my two nights in Leeds, sorry, I can't help it. Uh, the 24th of Feb, Chelping at the Leeds Library. It's a stunning 254-year-old library. It's like something from a film. Uh, Maria Ferguson plus Joshua Judson plus Open Mike. And then on the 4th of March, a brand new night called Tub Thumping at the Constitutional in Farsley, starring Selena Godden. That's oh. me! And Kirsty Taylor, <laughs> plus a little showcase section. Tub Thumping, named after the iconic... Uh, Chumba Wumba track obviously and I did get permission to use it even though it's just a word in the dictionary oh, I'm very I'm very excited actually about that that's going to be my first big live show of 2022 it'll be good yeah it'll be really we'll good. have a laugh won't we yeah we will we will good, good, good. so that's the gig roundup so in terms of content I've tried to uh, uh, pick a mix of written and video and audio so Joel Taylor's interview in The Guardian from the 17th of Jan uh, it's a really powerful piece on bringing the LGBTQ plus community together um, the headline of the piece is they are literally murdered so you know it's about the importance of the lgbtq community uniting through poetry and obviously the amazing news that joelle won that fantastic award yeah it was stunning news i love that congratulations again joelle if you're listening yeah well deserved yeah yeah absolutely it was such such a moment for the whole poetry scene when she won that it was brilliant um this might seem like an odd choice but it is good i'm gonna i really want i want to give it a shout out frank skinner has got a poetry podcast i know it doesn't seem the most obvious thing it's good isn't it it's really good he really breaks poems um down and really discusses them in depth and yeah yeah i'm a big fan of that podcast it's It's great i really like how he does it because he breaks it down in an accessible way but it doesn't dumb it down and it's not too it's a really good balance i think of his tone Accessible is a dirty word in poetry, isn't it? It's not meant to <laughs> <Yeah>. be accessible. <laughs> yeah. uh, recent spotlights include Nick Laird and Caroline Bird. So yeah, check that out. It's through Absolute Radio. Another podcast is the Dual Poetry Podcast. So Dual, D-U-A-L. It's produced by the Poetry Translation Centre and they have contemporary poems from Africa and Asia and Latin America every week. So it's really good to hear different poetry from around the world. Uh, there's a music video, uh, Live Like This. It's from Cashy Sees, the musical, which is a musical about cash converters. <laughs> but we have to call it Cashy Seas for now because we haven't got the copyright yet. But it's, uh, it's by Kirsty Taylor, who's a phenomenal poet who you're sharing the stage with soon. Um, it's about cash converters in Bradford. And it, that might sound strange at first, but like cash converters are often like community hubs. There's so many people are in there like trying to pawn something or trying to buy something back or whatever. And it almost acts as like a social service. Like it's such an incredible song and incredible musical. I've seen Scratch. It's really good. And then the last content I want to mention, uh, there's a series on iPlay called We Are England. Uh, which sheds a light on loads of different people from all aspects of English culture. And there was a poem launching it by Casey Bailey. We, sh- we shout out um, Casey quite a lot because he- he's phenomenal as well. Yeah, so yeah. the video's all over BBC socials. It's a, just a beautiful poem called We Are England about the alternative views of England. It's good. That sounds fantastic. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. So one of the tracks I wanted to choose uh, is The Saturday Boy by Billy Bragg. And it's just that beautiful, painful, unrequited teenage love that I just I, I, it takes me right back. I love it. Yeah, it's some Billy Bragg. Saturday 
never forget the first day I met her. That September morning was clear and fresh. The way she spoke and laughed at my jokes, and the way she rubbed herself against the edge of my desk. She became a magic mystery to me, and we'd sit together in Double History twice a week. And some days we'd walk the same way home, and it's surprising how quick a little rain can clear the streets. We dreamed of her and compared our dreams, but that was all that I ever tasted. She lied to me with her body. You see, I lied to myself about the chances I wasted. The times we were close, far and few between. In the darkness of the dances in the school canteen, did she close her eyes as I did when we held each other tight? And la 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 means I love you. And I stare up the window as I walk down a street, but I never made the first team. I just made the first team laugh, and she never came to the phone. She was always in the bar. In the end, it took me a dictionary to find out the meaning of unrequited. While she was giving herself for free at a party to which I was never. I never understood my failings then, and I hide my humble hopes now. Thinking back, she made us wonder. A girl not old enough to shave her song so much yeah me too the bard of barking billy bragg i don't know if people call him that but i'm calling him <laughs> um, so it's valentine's day next week you may or may not choose to celebrate valentine's day some people think it's a wonderful opportunity to pass on love some people think it's a con made up by clinton's cards but either way i think it's nice to celebrate love poetry and love songs so i've chosen some clips but uh, some of my favorite love poems and i've tried to mix it up a bit i've tried to deviate away from the traditional gushy love poem so the first one is by Ada Limon and it's called What I Didn't Know Before it's just such a stunning poem and it's my wife's favourite love poem as well so that's one of the reasons I wanted to choose it it's been read live at an event in 2018 and then after that uh, is Derek Walcott's poem Love After Love being read by Linton Quasi Johnson in 2018 um, it's just such an amazing poem about self love when you need to do that and sort of dealing with well, look, he says it better than I do. Um, and then we'll have a little track by Little Sims. So we've got Ada Limon and then Derek Walcott being read by Linton Quasi Johnson. 
What I didn't know before was how horses simply give birth to other horses. Not a baby by any means, not a creature of liminal spaces, but a four-legged beast hell-bent on walking, scrambling after the mother. A horse gives way to another horse, and then suddenly there are two horses. Just like that. That's how I loved you. You off the long train from Red Bank, carrying a coffee as big as your arm, a bag with two computers swinging in it unwieldy at your side. I remember we broke into laughter when we saw each other. What was between us wasn't a fragile thing to be coddled, cooed over. It came out fully formed, ready to run. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Give my life for this If the bullet was the beat I would probably die for this How many times did I cry for this? I would hate myself if I didn't at least try for this What's at stake is bigger than me Blood, tears, how it stains Can't rid it with ease What we have in common is our pain We're given the keys To unlock what it takes to fight for what we believe in Hard to confront the truth with what you see in the mirror Some people you inspire and others you trigger Fighting in blind faith led by the internal voice You might not want to do it but you don't have a choice Will the pressure take me to new heights or be my demise? Will my intentions coincide with what I advise? The people looking up to me doing everything right But who am I to tell anyone how to live their life? Your pain threshold will determine if you survive I'm amazed by it Lying to myself, pretending I was never faced by it Maybe cause you're in my DNA, that's why Confronted all her daddy issues The day will come when you got to find all the answers to your sins Pressures are provided, feeling unhappy within Or what kind of external family shit up on your plate But I understand wanting and needing an escape Too much I said, now the silence giving me headaches Only through speech can we let go of all this dead weight Even though I'm angry, don't want to be disrespectful Trying to figure out how to approach this in the best way Hard to not carry these feelings even 
on my best days Never thought my parents would give me my first heartbreak Anxiety giving me irregular heart rate Used to avoid getting into how I really feel about this Now I see how fickle life can be and so it can't wait Should have been the person there to hold me on my dark days It's easier to stargaze I wish then be faced with this reality Is you a sperm donor or a dad to me and still Life is short as we know Every mistake you make should contribute to your growth What you choose to avoid will probably come in your dreams I'm not forgiven for you, man, I'm forgiven for me And sometimes... just discussing how much we love Little Sims winning the award at the Brits should have got best artist not best new artist yeah but yeah yeah we yeah. love you that's if you're what we think Little Sims yeah, yeah it's such a good album it's great that she's getting the recognition on such a scale but she needs more yeah more more give her more we love her definitely okay so uh, the next two recordings um, Frank O'Hara who's one of my favourite poets yeah. I just adore Frank O'Hara it's uh, having a coke with you um, the sound quality is not amazing but it was read in his New York apartment in 1966 shortly before his accidental death and I just love the way he reads it it's like it's so nonchalant and dry but also so devoted there's so much devotion in there um, and then after that we have Louise Fazakali with romantic love poem taken from her album Bird Street um, I'll say no more the poem's called Having a Coke with You. It's even more fun than going to St. Sebastian, Irun, Ondai, Biarritz, Bayonne, or being sick to my stomach on the Travesera de Gracia in Barcelona. Partly because in your orange shirt you look like a better, happier St. Sebastian. Partly because of my love for you. Partly because of your love for yogurt. Partly because of the fluorescent orange tulips around the birches. Partly because of the secrecy our smiles take on before people in statuary. It is hard to believe when I'm with you that there can be anything as still, as solemn, as unpleasantly definitive as statuary when right in front of it, in the warm New York four o'clock light. We are drifting back and forth between each other like a tree breathing through its spectacles. And the portrait show seems to have no faces in it at all, just paint. You suddenly wonder why in the world anyone ever did them. I look at you, and I would rather look at you than all the portraits in the world except possibly for the Polish rider occasionally, and anyway it's in the Frick, which thank heavens you haven't gone to yet so we can go together the first time. And the fact that you move so beautifully more or less takes care of futurism, 
Just as at home, I never think of the nude descending a staircase or at a rehearsal, a single drawing of Leonardo or Michelangelo that used to wow me. And what good does all the research of the Impressionists do them when they never got the right person to stand near the tree when the sun sank? Or for that matter, Marino Marini, when he didn't pick the rider as carefully as the horse. It seems they were all cheated of some marvelous experience, which is not going to go wasted on me, which is why I'm telling you about it. Love poem. Jarvis Cocker, Jarvis Cocker, I just love the bones of you. Oh, Jarvis Cocker, Jarvis Cocker, I would like to bone with you. Oh, Jarvis, with your thick, black-rimmed glasses, like Velma, I also like Scooby-Doo. Oh, Jarvis Cocker, Jarvis Cocker, I would do the do with you. Oh, Jarvis, take me, take me, take me, take me to the supermarket. I am common too. You can strip my wood chip walls and show me a decorator's tool. Oh, Jarvis Cocker, Jarvis Cocker, you're not just an aging rocker. Someone said you'd wrote an opera. I have a feel for you to copper. Oh, Jarvis tall and Jarvis lean. I love you, Jarvis. Marry me.
welcome back. You are listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm Emma Rose and I am joined today by Farah Nayeri, who um, is an author, um, she's a musician and she's a journalist and she has published this book, which is called Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age. I'm not going to spoil the cover for you. We already gave the cover a shout out, but have a look on our socials or Google the book. It is the smartest cover. It is fantastic. Um, may I may I introduce the name of actually of that cover designer? Oh, please. Yes, his name is Richard Oriolo. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic idea. And Farah, I wanted to ask you firstly, just you cover a lot of different art events, subjects, you know from I mean one amazing article you did recently on human zoo exhibition and so these big big topics that um and you cover them in this universal way international publication so what was it about this topic that made you think this is the book that I'm going to write so I yeah I write for the for the New York Times uh culture pages and um Actually, I'm not the one who picked the topic of the book. Uh, it was almost chosen for me by a very smart agent in New York who read an article I'd written. I wrote an article for the newspaper about how Gauguin was being perceived in the Me Too era. Um, it's an idea, actually, believe it or not, that came to me a couple of years earlier um, when I was interviewing Kehinde Wiley in London for a show he was having, a gallery show. And Kehinde um, obviously thinks outside the box and he thinks differently from me you know I grew up in France or lived there a long time and I was always you know having this sort of conventional adoration for people like Gauguin and still do I mean I think you know his paintings are they knock me out um but you know Kehinde said yeah I mean I love Gauguin I truly have a great a fondness and passion for him but you know he's a kind of problematic and he said and he's creepy as Used it, and then he used a four-letter word, um, and he was just talking about the creepiness of Gauguin, because we were just coming into the Weinstein scandal that was just uh. breaking, and Kehinde was like, "Yeah, I really feel like I want to go back to Tahiti and revisit Gauguin, using these sort of sort of twenty-first-century spectacles," and because he was sort of in his mind, I guess, feeling like Gauguin was a little bit Weinstein-esque in the fact that he had married, quote unquote a couple of 13, 14-year-old girls, all the while being married to a Danish woman and having five children on the European continent. So he was doing all of this in Tahiti. Anyway, so I had this in my head and I thought, I'm going to cover this um, National Gallery show of Gauguin portraits with those eyeglasses or spectacles on. I'm going to go in with that view and see how they're tackling it. And I expected them to sort of sweep the whole issue of Gauguin and little girls under the carpet. Mm. And they didn't. They actually, on the main wall, they had this huge text saying Gauguin had sexual relations with 13, 14-year-old girls. He took advantage of his status as a colonial, French colonial um, uh, functionary or whatever you want to call him. And... um, and I wrote a story, and I spoke to a lot of art historians, many of them women, who said it was time to actually show Gauguin, yes, but also, quote, bring out the dirty stuff. And so that went kind of viral. It went viral all over the place. The French were quite offended. They hadn't actually read the piece. They thought I was saying, cancel Gauguin, because the headline said, is it time to cancel Gauguin? And... Um, Italians were also, you know, some some Europeans were objecting, but then North America, New Zealand, Australia, you know, all around the world, there were. I was invited on radio stations, and people were like, "Oh, very intrigued by this idea of revisiting Gauguin." 
And this very smart New York agent called Ross Harris, he approached me and he said, how would you like to write a, a sort of lengthier book about contextualizing art? You know, um, And then as you were writing the book, it's almost like that happening, that going viral, that conversation coming out of that article has become, it's almost like a, a wave, a ripple effect, yeah. whereby these conversations have not gone away. It's almost like um, that was the beginning. And now we are still talking about labelling, history, yeah. narratives and censorship from mm. both sides. What I thought was really interesting about your book is you talk about the two sides of censorship. You talk about art, you know, being censored, taken away, really restricted, and the power of the image. And then we come to now where, I don't know if you agree, mm -hmm. but it's almost like art's getting its own back slightly, mm -hmm. do you think? Um, how do you mean getting its own back? I feel like the art world, maybe we're coming, we're at a time where visual represent because of the uh, internet and everything, I think it's very powerful. Yeah. So I think people in charge, gatekeepers and people in charge of visual kind of um, representation are saying no. Or people, artists that are very famous, powerful, respected are saying no. No to? No, you can't, if you can't take my art, if you take this person's money, like right, Ryan Golden, yeah. um, you can't show my art if yeah. you show art by this person, yeah. or if you take it comes back to money a lot of the time. But again, if you have this name on the building, I'm sorry, that's it. Yeah, and um, and even if it doesn't end in the actual censure of somebody, mm -hmm. it can it creates a big debate, and the debates tend to kind of run and run. Yeah, and I think the point is that it does, as you say, because we live in democracies uh, in the West. Um, I'm from Iran. Um, sadly, the word democracy doesn't apply to where I'm from. Um, and in these democracies, I think that um, censorship and censure don't really happen. You're not going to see a museum director go and take down a painting because someone demonstrated in front of it. They're going to stand up for it when there's, um, you know... Uh, sort of protests around the uh, painting of Emmett Till by Dana Schutz at the Whitney, that painting remains hanging on the wall and um, other examples. But the point being, museums are now self-censoring in a way or being extremely mindful of all of these coefficients that before they were mindful of, but sort of in a kind of episodic way. Every now and again, they would say, okay, we should do something about diversity. And this is told to me by people who were involved. They would get committees together, sit around the table and say, yes, yes, diversity, it's really great. But then it wouldn't really be entrenched. The, the diversity, um, you know, like there are these artists that, you know, you kind of like uh, gobsmacked to realize it took a very long time to kind of show. Um, and so the point being, women artists were pretty much invisible, really. Yeah. I mean, women solo shows. Artists who were not white European males. I mean, all of these people were shunted to one side. And now everyone is sort of foregrounding them because the museums who don't do them, do, do, who don't do that, um, actually suffer. They're, you know, yeah. they, they become like the odd ones out. And there is, I think, um, appetite for it, public appetite. Yeah, absolutely. People like the shows. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've for instance... Um, 
Soul of the Nation, that exhibition at Tate Modern, or The Black Model, which was at Musée d'Orsay, a show of all the black figures in French or, you know, 19th century art. There were many. For instance, in Manet's Olympia, there's a black woman who is bringing her bouquet of flowers. And these figures were always overlooked. They were always kind of like, you know, faire valoir, as we say in French, sort of there to make the main protagonist of the, of the painting look good. But this exhibition actually turned the tables and said, let's look at who these black figures were. And that show was a revolutionary show. And so was Soul of the Nation. And it brought a lot of people to the museum who hadn't been to the museum before. And it also, in my view, I think probably contributed to the promotion of the head of Musée d'Orsay to the Louvre. The oh. Louvre has this new, the first woman director in its history, and she's the woman who put on Black Model. And my um, impression is that that exhibition had a lot to do with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think you're going to read us a little section of your book now, aren't you? Yes, I'm hoping that, that I'm not going to bore you too much. So I, I really don't like reading because I find... I mean, I, you know, but here we go. Um, the art world today, while still a work in progress, is a better, richer, and more interesting place than it was before. True, some of the changes are motivated by cynicism, damage control, and fear of bad publicity. Nonetheless, arts programming has become less staid, repetitive, and blockbuster-led. Audiences are faced with a wider and more relevant range of options, and they're visiting museums and arts institutions in ever greater numbers. Not only have museums not lost audiences in the process, they have gained new ones. There are those who are suspicious of this new age of inclusivity, who write it off as a burst of political correctness and view the beneficiaries as second-rate talents brought in to fill diversity quotas. Yet in the vast majority of cases, the artists emerging from oblivion and getting solo museum shows should have done so a long time ago. They have been unfairly underestimated for far too long. Thank you. And um, now we're going to have, because um, Farah is also a pianist, and um, now we're going to play a track. This is Para Africa by Alfredo Rodriguez. And this was performed live in Paris. By me, not yes. by Rodriguez. No. <laughs> At Sal Coro. In... Uh, Sal Corto, yeah. And um, I wondered also if you could tell us where the recording device is was placed for this yeah. particular show. So can I also name the three other musicians? Because I have Please. a... I have a band, so-called. We get together very, you know, once a year, once every two. I mean, you know, these guys are three of my closest friends. They all have like multiple PhDs. And um, so it's uh, Rastin Mirat, um, Frederick Martinez and Anselmo Paolone. So we have two, um, two of these uh, musicians are playing percussion and Anselmo playing bass. Um, and so, yeah, we were at Salle Courteau, which is actually the concert hall attached to École Normale de Musique in Paris. It is a, one of the m most acoustically perfect halls in, in, in the world. And it's, it's not a huge hall, but it's just gorgeous. And I was playing this gorgeous Steinway piano. And um, Anselmo had a digital recorder, and we stuck it under the belly of the piano. So that's what this is. It's a live, undoctored recording. Wonderful. Here we go.
Hello and welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Roaring Twenties, the number 20S, and the same on Instagram um, where you'll get um, references and links to everything we mention in the show. Um, I'm joined by Farah Nayeri, who has come and read us a segment for her her wonderful book, and we've just heard a wonderful song by her performance yes, recorded. Stunning! Yeah, I love that round of applause. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely beautiful. beautiful yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, but um, I wanted to come back something to the topic of the book as well and ask you just personal interest, really, what. So you, you, after coming up with the idea for the book, what of the last two and a half years, what was the story that most surprised you as the key story in this story? Of um, I think that what surprised me the most uh, was the degree to which um, people were being excluded and people were being erased and were being invisible. Uh, I mean, I always knew that um, the art world was not, or the museum world, or art history was not going to be an equal space. I always knew that, you know, men uh, were dominant in that space, but I really did not realize the abs- the sheer degree of erasure that was going on. Um, I mean, it was really quite staggering up until quite recently. Um, women artists given solo shows in the major museums of the West were a handful. Mm. Uh, really a handful, if you think back maybe a decade ago, a decade and a half, or the turn of the millennium. Yeah. And we are in the new millennium. We are in the 21st century. And for women, to so few women to get solo shows, uh, when you look at it now, it really feels... Um, Quite shocking. And it's not a case of political correctness on my part. I mean, it's not that I'm being woke. It's just a matter of, as a reporter, looking at a situation. As reporters, we're hardwired to look at what's fair and what's unfair. And that situation was just so damned unfair. And same with artists who were non-white. Same thing, only worse. So that's what shocked me. And one thing, just to go on from that, is also it goes back, doesn't it? With Artemisia, yeah, and goes back yeah. to the Renaissance, where you have these. It's not like these people weren't making work, as you say. Yeah. With the Dorsey show, it's like the work was there, the people were there, people actually enjoyed the work yeah. a lot of the time. It's just the canon just discounted them, and it yeah. fell by the wayside. Yeah, I think there were art historians who came along, like in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, and they they kind of decided who we would consider great artists and who we wouldn't. Just think about it. I mean, I know he's not a female artist, but Caravaggio was sort of neglected for a very many long yes. years. Caravaggio. Wonderful. <laughs> and the same thing happened to Artemisia. Artemisia was the, the you know, uh, the mm. glory of her day. She had undergone rape as a 17-year-old girl, but then gone on to become an absolutely very famous and very successful painter. But then along come, you know, art historians afterwards, and they decide that, no, Artemisia, no, not that interesting. And so they sweep her under the carpet. So it's as you say, and I think the the point is that canons are constantly evolving. I um, interviewed Daniel Birnbaum, the great curator, uh, in my book, and he says, yeah, canons are constantly evolving, and they reflect our times. Yes, exactly, and I think that's something... um, that's very important um, in terms of something that's happening in this country in terms of the kind of culture war that history is a constant reflection and it is an ongoing thing 
Um, yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. We need to remember that maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, coming back to you, um, you also have a podcast, Culture Blast. Yes, Culture yeah. Blast, all one word. Yes. <laughs> so tell me about that. How did that come about? Well, I mean, I I love um, interviewing people and I and I interview, I have the great privilege of interviewing phenomenal artists and creative people. And I remember having lunch with a very famous kind of well-known museum director from here, basically. And he said, I really envy you, you know, for interviewing so-and-so. And he's He's a really important guy himself. He's like, like getting an hour and a half with David Hockney or an hour and a half with Ai Weiwei or, you know, these people. Like, I wish I was in the room. Or, you know, people kept saying, we wish we were in the room, etc. And I, you know, because it, these would always end up as print stories, the audio of their voice speaking and telling me stories about really their whole life, their career, who they were, how they grew up, etc. This wasn't being heard. And I just thought, I would really like to share this. And when the whole podcast medium came up, I just thought, I mean, I found a friend, first of all, who agreed to produce the show because I couldn't produce it myself, Karina Pierre Rochard. And uh, she said, I want to produce your podcast because I'd given up, you know. And um, so, so... I've had like five or six guests and they've been luminaries and I and I it's not because it's my show but they really are supremely brilliant people like from Emma Emma Thompson yeah, to Nile Rodgers Yeah Nile Rogers, Nan Golden wow. um Elif Shafak the Turkish novelist and yesterday or the other day I um oh, I recorded that. Wayne McGregor Oh that's exciting Yeah Fabulous. so anyway so that was a little plug. Sorry about that. Oh, no, no plug away, plug, plug away. away. We love it. We yeah. can put a link up. <laughs> but um, but also, and then, but just going on, what is kind of, you say, an hour with these greats, an hour with these people. And I think there's something really interesting about that. There's so much you can say in an hour and there's so much you can glean from yeah. somebody mm-hmm. if you go into their home or even if you Zoom them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and uh, the thing is also, as you know, Amarose, being a journalist yourself and a very good one, uh, it's also all in the questions. Yeah. And I spend uh, an inordinate amount of time preparing these shows because these people are extremely well known and they have given hundreds of interviews in their life. And the last thing I want is to hear what I've already heard said twice or even once somewhere else. So I spend a long time preparing and really to get the most out of people, you, as you know, I mean, the questions have to really be, I mean, one of my guests um, told me politely that I was pushy. <laughs> and uh, I apologized. And he said, No, it's okay. But yeah, I mean, if a journalist is not pushy, They're not really a good journalist, to be honest, because I mean, if you're sitting there, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I hate to say this about other shows but you know you hear the the person says something so they're a big star and the host says oh mike that's absolutely amazing and i just could listen to you all day and isn't that fantastic and oh i just love your new book and oh and your new movie you know and that is just to me i mean well i mean it's a loving and it's it's not really telling you anything new and that that's the thing but i feel like i don't know there are some people who shall remain nameless who do have things that they roll out in interviews and it's like this challenge i know if i'm talking to someone yeah. like that i'm like okay they're starting the anecdote you've got to cut them off yes you've got to cut them off you cannot <laughs> go into that you've said it 50 times yeah. and i cannot have this or i'm just going to lose time and once they start 
they don't stop it's like just flows yeah but um yeah i think that is true researching understanding people but i think that's also something that people being interviewed really appreciate because it shows that you care it shows that you've looked into them and that you're interested in what they do yeah, I mean, I think uh, certainly that has been the feedback is when they emerge from that room. Yeah. <laughs> they do say, you know, well, one of them said, you know, you're you're a bit pushy. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I think uh, people, yeah, I mean, when you're someone who's that brilliant, you do like being challenged and not, you know, um, exactly. not sit in kind of this love in place. And then you say we have your many many strings to your like, many yeah. bows, but um. So what will you be doing next? Do you think you saying you had, that was the last gig you played the song <laughs> that we just listened to? Will you be gigging again? Will you be doing more music? Will you be just writing? Well, I mean, I would love to perform music again. Obviously, I mean, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm writing is the main. That's the main thing. I would love to perform again. The problem in London is that I don't know a bass player and percussionist who would want to play with me. So if, if there are any people out there who do, um, I'm up for it. Roll up, roll <laughs> yeah. up, roll up. You heard it here first. Auditions. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you, Thanks Amorous. for telling us about what you do and um, sharing your music with us because I thought that was just so wonderful and we all enjoyed that so much and thank you for making me feel young and cool <laughs> anytime <laughs> all right so this is another weekend by ariel pink
Listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm Selena Godden, and I'm going to do the little book section now. Well, it's not a little book section; it's a big, fat, juicy book section. Books are so good at the moment. There's writers 
artists, poets, just making such incredible, inspiring work. I've just been reading, 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 and I've got so many lovely things to share with you. Before I start, I should probably say some personal news. Uh, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death came out in paperback um, since I was last on the show yes. with you. And it's got a lovely blue cover. And we're in the window of foils just round the corner from the studio where I am right now. Big, big, big picture of my book in the window of foils. I just feel so excited about that. And uh, thank you to everyone that's been Instagramming and Facebooking and tweeting. Really, really, really means a lot. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so... I'm going to start my book section talking about old books, reissued books, and I've got two very interesting books that I want to talk to you about. The Red-Headed Woman has been reissued. It's by Catherine Brush, and it's a new imprint called Eglantine Books. Eglantine, Eglantine, and it's by the legendary Olivia and Robert Temple. I don't know if you've heard of Robert Temple's fantastic author, and they're just so out there, amazing couple, and they just do amazing stuff, and they've started this imprint. So The Red-Headed Woman, let me read you a little bit from the back. So The Red-Headed Woman was a sensational bestseller and it is believed that during the height of the Great Depression the author earned more than a million dollars in royalties from it. It was made into the film Red-Headed Woman in 1932 with Jean Harlow playing the role of the anti-heroine Lillian Andrews. So the resulting film was considered so shocking that it was officially banned in the United Kingdom. The storyline roughly follows Lillian, who has no heart whatsoever, and she wants money, and she wants things, and she wants social status. And I just think it's such a fascinating read, and I've just been, um, like, just, I've just started it, but I'm just so fascinated that it's being reissued, and I love this sort of vibe, and this this era, and this, you know, she's portrayed as a gold digger, and, you know, she's got all this sex appeal, which is sort of looked and frowned, you know, frowned upon, and I just really love, you know, it's just juicy stuff from a, a whole other era and I just find it really interesting so look out for that um, it's by Catherine Brush and it's got a lovely cover with like the red-headed woman so I'm really fascinated by that okay so passionately passionately fascinated by that and I'm also okay so this ties in really beautifully with Amma Rose's conversation with Farah they have reissued um, K. Dick's They They was published in 1977 by it's by an English author called K. Dick and it's one of the century's most nightmarish, dystopian um, sort of books. It's like art under attack, evoking the lives of hunted creatives in a sort of English coastal landscape. Um, Margaret Atwood um, has described this as insidiously horrifying, and uh, I'm Emma Bride as lush, strange, hypnotic and compulsive, and Edna O'Brien as the signature of an enchantress. Enchantress? Enchantress. I can't put, put my teeth back in. <laughs> but I, I, I read this. I read this book in one greedy gulp. It's just so everything I'm scared of. And it was published in 1977. It's been republished now by Faber. Um, and so it's Britain through a glass darkly. So the National Gallery is purged. Eerie towers observe. Shadows stalk the countryside. They 
are in control. Novels are burned, paintings confiscated, sculptures are destroyed. And those who resist are cured. Artists are blinded, musicians made deaf, hands are amputated. And it's just such a fantastic, moving, warning, chilling, brilliant read. It's very, very skinny, skinny little book. Um, And I'm really, really lucky because I wrote to Faber and thanked them for sending me the book and they sent me a little bit from the audio book. So we're going to have a little listen to it now. So this is Kay Dick and this is They and it's being read by the brilliant um, actress Isabel Young, um, whose daughter, of course, of Louisa Young. Um, Shout out to Isabel. This is absolutely fantastic. So here's a little clip from They by Kay Dick. I remembered how they began, a parody for the newspapers. No one wrote about them now. Dystopia was one of my first favourite genres, the beginning of the path away from the books of childhood. I read Animal Farm, Fahrenheit 451, V for Vendetta. They were supple with metaphor. I saw for the first time the aboutness of novels, the currents that moved underneath the prose. There is a reason we teach dystopian novels to teenagers, the same reason young adult fiction is bursting with them. Adolescence marks the moment you begin to see around things, when the disquiet that's been churning in your mind breaks clean and clear against the shore. Dystopia is a genre for the post-lapsarian age, art for what you cannot unsee. They was first published in 1977, when it won the Southeast Arts Literature Prize. It is the fourth book by the trailblazing queer English writer, editor and publisher Kay Dick, who lived with her partner Kathleen Farrell in Hampstead for over 20 years. In They, which the author calls A Sequence of Unease, though it sits somewhere between story collection and fix-up novel, a novel composed of previously published short stories newly connected by the author, common in mid-century genre fiction and characterised, among other things, by the loose way they hang together, bound by common characters or world-building. An unnamed, ungendered protagonist moves around the English countryside with a group of artists and intellectuals, evading the predations of a mysterious group of Philistines only referred to as they. They have no government, no creed, no mercy. Calculating in their cruelty and methods in one moment, and shockingly reckless and barbaric the next, they move on trawlers in the waterways and erect eerie towers on the coast where the defiant are sent to have their memories purged. They loathe art, people who live alone, excessive displays of emotion. They pilfer novels and paintings. They burn music scores and poetry. They also punish anyone who resists. Unrepentant visual artists are blinded, shameless musicians made deaf. A sculptor has the broken glass from his sculpture pressed into his eyes. A children's author walks shell-shocked daily into a pond seeming to extinguish the memory of being set on fire. Should they choose to continue their practice, they will amputate your hands and cut out your tongue, one of them tells the narrator. They hold the right arm of Jane, a poet, over flames for eight minutes for the crime of moving towards her burning work. Her husband, Russell, had acted differently. You've forgotten this, he had said as he hurled his recently finished fugue into the fire. They is spare troubling, eerily familiar. It evokes Yoko Ogawa's Revenge, Eleven Dark Tales, or Jacqueline Harkman's I Who Have Never Known Men, occupying a space between dystopia and horror. The lush landscapes are haunted by profoundly unsettling details about the forces at work. 
It was no good listening for footsteps, the narrator tells us. They wore no shoes. And all of it a backdrop for endless questions about art. What does it mean to create for no audience? If you cannot read a novel any longer, is it enough to remember it? Is it more important to protect the artist or their work? They sold badly enough that when Dick requested the paperback edition, her editor gently reminded her that authors had to pay for their own copies of their book unless their advance had been earned out. I suggest that Penguin make efforts to sell more copies of They to cover this deficit, Dick suggested in her peevish reply. K. Dick Papers, the University of Texas at Austin, Harry Ransom Humanities Research Centre. She was not satisfied with Penguin's sales or publicity efforts. It seemed to her that nobody at the house was committed to the book, and Dick was correct in her own way. No one was quite ready for they. Not the house that published it, not the readers who ignored it, not the literary critics whose reactions were middling to unbelievably sexist, including, perhaps most notably, the male reviewer in the Sunday Times who described it as a fantasy sprouting from some collective menopausal spasm in the national unconsciousness. Two years after publication, they was out of print. After her death in 2001, Dick's literary executors approached numerous publishers, but all declined the opportunity to republish her work. When it was finally rediscovered, a chance encounter in which a literary agent happened to pick it up in a charity shop, it was impossible to order a used copy on the internet. My own is less a book and more a sheaf of frail pages held together by a memory of a spine. And that's a little bit about They by K. Dick, which is out now with Faber. Sorry, I was miles away looking out the window then, just thinking They, and just watching people go past a Soho radio window thinking They. Anyway, <clears throat> it's a very haunting book. It will stay with you. You'll get it. when If you read it, you'll know what I'm going on about. OK, so um, some more books that I'd like to plug and share with you. I'd like to tell you to... Uh, um, Look out for Ella Baxter's New Animal. I've just started reading that. It's fascinating. Um, Australian um, author Ella Baxter. So look out for that. Um, book that completely, that I just completely loved last weekend. I, I read um, Jenny Fagin's Hex, which is out now on Polygon. Um, Jenny Fagin, I mean, she's a legend, absolutely brilliant writer of our times. And um, Hex is such a fascinating story. It's imagining um, a witch that's a modern day witch or seer in a seance and manages to make contact with um, a witch that's about to be burnt at the stake. And they have this conversation in the prison cell um, while she's waiting to be taken away and, and, and you know and, and oh it's just so moving and so brilliantly and beautifully written so look out for that that's the latest thing from Jenny Fagan um, I'm also going to give a shout out to Maggie G. Um, Maggie G, total legend, absolutely amazing writer. Um, how many novels has she done? I mean, she must be on book 20 by now. I'm sure, um, well, a lot, a lot, a lot of books. She's done a lot of books. And um, The Red Children is her latest. It's out on Saki. Um, and The Red Red Children, I feel, um, it offers a warning and a vision of our past, present and future. It's an extraordinary book in its courage. And it's so hopeful too. Um, I go on about this a lot, but I think it's quite hard hard work actually to be hopeful and to show that resilience and to show um, hope and that there's a, another way through this and I, I, I think this book does this beautifully it's such a fantastic novel and um, to look out for that, that's Maggie G um, also out right now is the Abol Abolitionist Abolitionist Handbook which is out with, uh, with Onit Books and that's Patrice Cullors who of course was the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement and that book's just come out so look out for that on the Onit page um 
And then, yeah, going back to a little bit of what I just said earlier, Hannah Walker has written her first uh, first big book, and it's called Sensitive, and it's the power of feeling sensitive in a world that doesn't. And just let you think about that. So it's just it's just such a beautiful book, collection of um, interviews and, and just examining what we actually mean when we're saying someone's sensitive and the, the way we sort of think of people that show their feelings or people that have empathy or people that, that feel, you know, show, show their vulnerability and how, how courageous that can be, you know, in a world that's kind of bullying us to be something other than what we're truly feeling or how we talk about our feelings or how we own our feelings. So look how out for that that's just that's um just on its way out and that's by um hannah walker it's called sensitive it's got a fantastic cover it's dark blue with with sensitive kind of like a glowing red okay so then i'm going to play you a little clip now so coming up um this book has really intrigued me it's called what a shame and it's by Abigail Bergstrom. Sorry, I lost the name there. Abigail Bergstrom. What a shame tells the story of Matilda, who's recently lost her father and split very suddenly from her boyfriend and the series of unorthodox remedies she throws herself into in a quest to finally find peace. Abigail writes with great humour and incisiveness about modern day life. I found this book so hip and groovy and easy to read and I was in there with Matilda and I just really, really enjoyed the character and and the illustration of of the times and where we are again how how we talk about our feelings and how we talk about grief and and love and loss um it's a fantastic book here's a little tiny clip from abigail uh, abigail's audiobook of what a shame at first there was drama and morbid excitement all the morose trimmings that come with the early stages of mourning and grief people came over they brought pre-cooked food wrapped and marinating in flavors Flowers from the fancy florist and other small appropriate gifts. They wore black, respectfully, to both of your funerals. Dark, smart clothing on a grey day to a brutalist crematorium. And dark, sullen moods to a flat we once shared where remnants of your dead skin were still in the carpet. Now that you're both gone, I'm struggling to decipher which thread of grief belongs to each of you. It's a wiry, tangled mass in my chest, like those metal scourers you use to scrub stubborn pans. Each coarse steel strand is more tightly coiled than the last, and when amassed tightly in your hand, it's soft to touch. Only when a single strand frays loose is it sharp and painful. I think that's why it's easier to keep you both matted together. After your elusive departure... My friends pretended they didn't have plans for the weeks that followed. They came over with wine. People fussed over me, and when I sat down at a table, there always seemed to be a spare seat where you would have sat. A sign now for my misery, so plain to see, as if it were wearing a large red hat. At the beginning, grief and tragedy are ripe dinner party fodder. Her father died. It's such a horrible story. He had a nasty fall and was left brain damaged, completely out of the blue. There one day, gone the next. That's just awful. Yeah, it completely paralysed him. He was in and out of consciousness for months, so they weren't really sure how much was, you know, going on up there. It's so sad. Terrible. It's much easier to empathise with the unpleasantness of a recent tragedy Proximity to the present is the real marrow. 
Lurking in the corner of your reality, you feel it in the room, and the fear is that it could decide to pick you next. In order to preserve yourself, you must hold it up in your hands and acknowledge its very horribleness. Tell someone about it and a bid for it to stay far away from you for as long as possible. Because pain gets us all in the end, doesn't it? We all must suffer eventually. The only question is, when? Oh no, he left her. Did you not hear? He just got up and went one day, no explanation. He just walked out the door and she's heartbroken. In an absolute hell of a state. We've been talking on the phone, but it's like she's run out of things to say. I'm relieved when they stop asking me how I'm feeling, leaving me to indulge myself under a cloak of shame. Much unlike horror, the best way to prevent shame from attaching itself to you is by ignoring it entirely. Better in than out. Breakups and death are commonplace, and you're accustomed to the ritual surrounding them. You watch them in films, you read about them in books. The retellings of an old, timeless narrative in which one etches out one's humanity. You know what to do with the anguish that immediately seeps from an ending. Sudden or slow, you have been taught. It's the ongoing and ebbing sadness that continues afterwards that we all find a little dull. Unworthy of a story, perhaps. Were we really in love, or did I just imagine it all that time? Of course he loved you. That was clear to everyone. We all saw it. I should have done more when my dad was ill. You did what you could. You did your best. Why did he have to go? Why did who have to go, Matilda? I am immovable in its dark swamp. Stuck. A stuckness so suffocating, a paralysis so ubiquitous that I almost forget to breathe. There's only so long those who love you can dampen their own happiness out of sensitivity for your misfortunes. Eventually they must resume their lives. So I smiled when they told me they'd met someone. I raised my glass to their promotion and celebrated their new show. I clapped my hands when they got engaged and I didn't mention that a diamond was an unethical symbol of male ownership. I didn't even begrudge ordering a Virgin Mary on a Sunday afternoon when she got pregnant and he stopped drinking to support her. I kept partaking in their happiness, and the waves of joy that swell from their lives keep me going, making sure that my sadness doesn't strangle me. The swamp engulfing me entirely as I let out a final loud burp of disdain.
You're listening to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. I'm Selena Godden. I'm here with Amma Rose Abrams and Matt Abbott. And we've got a special guest, Farah. Nayeri. <laughs> I really hate the idea of saying it wrong. Um, thank That's you. Okay, no for so I'm just going to, um, just to round up my book section, I've just got uh, three more books that I want to tell you about. So These Bodies of Water by Sabrina Mafuz is on its way. Look out for it. An amazing, beautiful cover. You can't miss it. It's absolutely fantastic. An examination of colonialism, investigating British Empire through history, politics, myth, poetry. It's absolutely brilliant. And we, it was such a massive fan of Sabrina. If she's listening, please, could you come in and be a guest in our show? That would just rock our worlds, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Yes, yes. it would. Yes, yes it, it would. would. Yes, it would. So that's a shout out. And hopefully, hopefully um, we'll be able to have Sabrina in in person to read and tell us more about that. But look out for that. These bodies of water. I'm also going to give a shout out to Michael Paid- Michael Peterson, um, who has Boyfriends, which is coming out soon on Faber. It's a beautiful book about love and friendship and grief. And it's out in July. But I just want wanted to bring that up because the thing is is both of those books are people that are seen as poets but moving into different kinds of writing um so michael's book is very much a memoir and sabrina's book also non-fiction okay so talking about poetry i think my favorite and i hate to say favorites because i love everyone and i love all the poets and it's really mean to say favorite but i think an outstanding am i allowed to say that an outstanding collection that i was sent is bobby parker's new collection honey monster is absolutely stunning i think it's heroic and miraculous and i've actually given it a quote on the cover it's an instant 2020s cult classic it's what we say isn't it i mean i mean it just is he just writes from such a place of passion and um, and and vulnerability and courage um, and I'm very very lucky I wrote to Bobby and he sent me um, one of the pieces from the book and we're going to play that for you now this is Bobby Parker from his new book Three Months Sober and it's almost Halloween The guy next door thinks he's such a hero for being lonely When a frightened woman screams for help on our street He says, it's silly what people do to get attention. Sometimes I kneel with them in the road and they tell me what hurts as his face floats against the dark glass like a hungry fish. The last one said she used to be a nun. She was sitting under spectral halogen streetlight surrounded by torn bags full of clothes spilling out like swollen tongues. When the guy next door came out to check on us, she waved at him and said, You must be a very nice man. He just folded his arms, sniffing the wind for booze. I remember that spreading pool of piss, how it looked as if the ground was opening up beneath her, but somehow I managed to make her laugh. After the ambulance took her away, my neighbour said, Helping people like that is the worst thing you can do because they always come back begging to be your friend. He doesn't know that I have been that woman, that I could be that woman for him or he could be that woman for me. You can tell he's got money because his garden is stunning with a white dog and fairy lights and spinning metal sculptures. The way he has utilised such limited space 
kills me every time I go to my daughter's bedroom window and stare straight down. It has this magic atmosphere, like that secret corner at a festival, where there's a pretty couch and maybe some water and someone you love is convinced you're never going to die. Looking at my neighbour's garden makes me want to get fucked up in the best possible way. It makes me want to get fucked up in the worst possible way. It makes me want to never have been so fucked up in the first place. He thinks he's such a hero, keeping his shit to himself. His name is also Bob. It's weird. I hate being called Bob. But when I talk to myself, I say, Fucking hell, Bob. Of course they come back. They are supposed to come back. We squander our haunted lives in return. Oh, oh, oh. I am actually good Can't help it if we're dirty 
Welcome back to Roaring Twenties Radio on Soho Radio. We've just had Love Song by The Cure and then Tilted by Christine and the Queens. That is bringing us towards the end of our episode. It's been wonderful today. If you want to listen back to previous episodes, you can find them all on your regular podcast provider or at anchor.fm forward slash Roaring Twenties Radio and the 20s is 20S. Thank you, Farah, for joining us. Really insightful and informative chat and a wonderful exclusive of your music, which is great. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Farah. It was so good to meet you today. It was wonderful to be here and uh, an honour for me. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll be back next month with more poetry, art, music and books. We will. 12th of March, I reckon, off the top of my head. Oh, OK. Yeah. So maybe maybe the next one should have more of a, like an International Women's Day yeah. feel. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, let's bring the power... Yes, okay. let's do it. Okay. Right. And um, in the spirit of International Women's Day and women breaking the mould, we're going to go out with Patty Smith because the night. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank Goodbye. You. Disguised as lust Here in our bed Until the morning comes